Welcome to the DTP podcast for October 2021, volume 59, number 10. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we talk about some of the content in October's issue of DTB, and we're currently recording this at the beginning of September. But before we discuss uh, the October issue in depth, I know you wanted to talk about some news around Pregabalin and a letter that's been sent to GPs in Northern Ireland from the Health and Social Care Board, James. So well, what did the letter say? Yes, thank you. Uh, I mean, this is quite an interesting development. Uh, the HSCB of Northern Ireland has written to GPs suggesting, well, actually notifying them, um, that pregabalin should be removed from the neuropathic pain formulary and uh, basically suggesting that they should no longer initiate it for that indication and that they should also be looking to... Uh, move the patients off pregabalin um, who are currently taking it for that indication. So quite a significant um, request from the HSCB in Northern Ireland. And what's what's driven that move? So this is about deaths. Um, the concern has been that Northern Ireland has a high level of drug-related deaths. And um, there was one death associated with pregabalin in 2013 to 54 in 2018 and 77 in 2019. And overall now, pregabalin equates to 13% of all drug-related deaths in Northern Ireland uh, over those 10 years. So, um, you know, some significant concern about it um, in that area. And what are they offering as alternatives? So uh, they're suggesting that um, suitable replacement therapies should include amitriptyline and they would prefer that first line and possibly gabapentin second line. I mean, gabapentin has been also associated with 28 deaths over the same period, but nothing like the uh, number 186 pregabalin associated deaths over that decade. So, um, yes, I mean, I, I think this is... Interesting because, of course, NICE um, back in 2020 updated its guidance for the management of low back pain and sciatica and actually recommended in that guidance that gabapentinoids, so that was pregabalin and gabapentin, should both not be used in the management of neuropathic pain associated with sciatica. So, um, you know, the writing has been on the wall with regard to the evidence base for these two drugs. And I know that they... I mean, over my lifetime, I've seen them both licensed as drugs and seen their use for that indication, absolutely mushroom. Um, And yet now we're seeing a real reining in. And one of the reasons for that is first do no harm. And there's big concern in Northern Ireland that pregabalin is doing harm. And it's worth pointing out, isn't it, that um, 2019, these were reclassified as uh, controlled substances. Uh, And I think also it was in Earlier this year, the MHRA issued a warning about severe respiratory depression associated with uh, pregabalin. So there is a building picture, isn't there, of of problems associated with these drugs, particularly in overdose. 
Absolutely. They've definitely, um, you know, I think we first looked at them back over a decade ago in the DTB. And I think then we were looking at the license for anxiety and we weren't impressed with them then. And it's clear that there's been mounting evidence of abuse or risk of abuse and dependence. And I think this is a class of drugs where the pendulum is definitely swinging the other way. And I think we'll see a decline in their use significantly over the next few years. Certainly in England, the, I had a quick look at the prescribing data and to the last 12 months that we have data available, there were over 2 million prescriptions for pregabalin, so still a sizable amount wow. of out there. And even deaths, because I looked at the deaths from drug poisoning, England and Wales in the two, 2020 data, I think it was, and there'd been a 41% increase to, I think it was 340 or 344 with pregabalin uh, and, and particular concerns when it's used in conjunction with an opioid and the, the increased risk of that. So interesting what happens. In their primary chronic primary pain guidance, NICE also advised steering clear of gabapentinoids, I think. Yes, I mean personally, I've I've always found them difficult, and because you have to titrate them up, they are complex drugs to manage. You've got to titrate them up, and of course, if you're going to stop them, you've got to titrate them down, and that makes life very complicated. And I think, um, you know, this unfortunately is a cul-de-sac that uh, we're going to just have to back out of and try and manage these patients better through physical therapies. Yes, consider drugs perhaps like amitriptyline, which has been around. A long, long time, and it's still, you know, a dangerous drug, an overdose, but it's not addictive, and uh, it's not a drug of dependence in the same way that these drugs are. Okay, that's uh, something to watch out for. I mean, obviously, Northern Ireland have made a move, and wait and see what happens in the rest of um, the UK. Okay, for this uh, issue of DTP, we're going to talk about the editorial, uh, look at a commentary article. And a review article that features prescribing for pregnant women who have migraine. Uh, so let's start with the editorial. This is one that we wrote together with Joanna Gerling. And the starting point was the announcement by the MHRA that two desigestral containing products have been reclassified from prescription only status and can now be sold in pharmacies. So what were our issues? Well, I think I think the major issue here was sort of what are we trying to achieve, I suppose. And I think the rationale behind this move is that it offers choice for women. And um, as we state very clearly in our editorial, that's all good. And there's no doubt about it that community pharmacies are accessible and they, you know, they're often placed in uh, the heart of their communities. And pharmacists are, you know, are very highly trained and they're often there clinical acumen is often underused and underutilised by the NHS. So no problem with the concept of these drugs being available through pharmacy. I think where we had the concern was what we were trying to achieve by doing this. And certainly we had no problems with the safety issue of these products and didn't have any any qualms with them being made available. But, but as you say, what is it that they release of these products as pharmacy and medicines is going to going to achieve for you you know this is something that various colleges have called for um but perhaps not in the context of private purchase i think that's it i think there's a commercialization of medicines going on here and this feels like a commercialization rather than a public health improvement if you like if you look at 
you know, where do we need to get better access to contraception? You know, these particularly deprived, marginalised groups, marginalised parts of the country where often the rate of uh, abortion can be twice as high as in other areas. So, you know, that's where we want to be really focusing our attention. And yet we're talking about charging £10 for a month for this drug. And that just cuts across any concept that this is going to actually be available to the real heart and a nub of where you would like it to be available. So that's the issue we've got is that, yeah, safe drug. We we totally supported the MHRA and the Royal College of Ops and Gynecologists in um, their Better for Women report in 2019. No issues at all about these uh, progesterone-only um, pills being decategorized, if you like, from POM to P. It's a fact that they're going to charge £10 for the privilege of getting it from your pharmacist and the very population that you want to give better access to these um, types of medications are not going to be the ones that can access it because of the cost. I mean, as you say, you know, for some some women, this, this will be a benefit. If they run out and need to quickly buy a month's supply, £10 may not be an issue. But as you point out, for those for those for whom £10 is going to be beyond them, and certainly for a regular supply, this isn't going to solve their problems. Exactly. And I think it comes on top of what's been concerning a lot of people um, in public health and in, in, in primary care is there has been a, overall a reduction in local authority funding for contraception. And the all-party parliamentary group on sexual and reproductive health pointed out this. And, that, you know, this this reduction in funding has meant that actually overall contraception is becoming harder to access. So increasing access by commercialising it actually doesn't counter that reduction in services for for people. Yes, as you say, great if you've perhaps forgotten to see your GP and you're, and you're happy to spend £10 every now and then. You know, I can imagine there are groups of of women who will find this helpful, but it's not going to, I think my worries, it's not going to improve um, sexual health issues around abortion and, and other elements like that. And of course, we have got the, um, I suppose, the parallel of when uh, emergency hormonal contraception first came to be available over, over the, well, certainly from pharmacies, we had the opportunity for people to buy it, but quite quickly, the, well, the NHS turned to commissioning a service from community pharmacists to provide EHC free of charge to users direct from the, from the community pharmacies to save people having to, having to buy it. Now, is this something you could see working here? I think so. And I think that's probably what's going to happen, isn't it? Once you've made it a P medicine, you've, you've allowed then simply to put in local enhanced services. You know, you could get pharmacists working with primary care networks and public health to create some simple services that will provide that. So that's the hope that actually this is just a start of uh, a better access overall for contraception to women. Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's turn to the commentary article that we've published this month that looks at evidence for PCI in stable ischemic heart disease. Um, what were the issues in this paper? Yes, I love this paper because I think it addressed a, a really important issue. And that is, I think most patients uh, assume that if they undergo percutaneous um, investigations of their heart, 
that you know and perhaps have revascularization that that's going to improve their outcome and long term and it's going to make them healthier and they're going to live longer and they'll have less risk of subsequent coronary events and of course there are groups of uh, patients for whom that is the case um, particularly if your main coronary artery is affected but actually for a huge number of people there has been increasing evidence that perhaps this isn't the case. So there were two studies way back, 2007 and 2009, that raised this issue about does revascularization actually reduce deaths, heart attacks or major events in people with ischemic heart disease. And those two studies had some uh, criticism aimed at them because of concerns about selection bias, the fact that you know these patients weren't actually randomised until after we had looked at their arteries. But this study called the Schema trial that was um, published in NEGM, uh, randomised them first. So randomised people with moderate to severe reversible ischemia on non-invasive stress testing. So I assume that's on the old fashioned treadmill test. And um, then randomised them to either have invasive sort of tests, in other words, angiography and possibly revascularization if necessary, or just to have their medication optimized. And this study looked at the outcomes and, and that's the fascinating bit about, about this study. So the outcome, which was a, one of these composite outcomes, uh, what did it show? Yeah, so this is a, one of these, as you say, composite, you know, basket of things. So it looked at cardiovascular deaths, heart attacks, resus arrest, or hospitalizations for unstable angina or heart failure. That was the composite death. And in the invasion group, 12.3% of the group had that outcome uh, in the first 3.2 years. That was the mean um, level time of follow-up. And in the medication group, it was 13.6. So although it looks like it's slightly higher, the hazard ratio actually was 0.93 with no... Um, it, in no significance. So basically no difference in outcome uh, between the group that had angiography in 96% of cases and the medication group that only had angiography in about 26% of cases. And there did seem to be, and, and certainly Tech who wrote the commentary, draws out some of the controversy, or at least the question over whether some of the... Um, results were driven by more procedure related MI in the intervention group early on and this reduced over time? Yeah that was really interesting so at six months after the intervention or randomization 5.3% um, of the group that had had the angiography or and plus or minus revascularization actually there was a 5.3% of them had had that composite outcome whereas it was only 3% well, 3.4% at six months in the medication group. And that was a significant difference in the two groups. And if you looked at MI alone at six months, so they could go back and look at the data for just classifying MIs alone, 10% of the activate intervention group versus 3.7% in the medication group. So quite a significant difference in MI rate between those two groups. So having read it, um, and seeing text commentary, kind of what's the take-home message for you for the next patient who's sitting before yes. you saying, I've been referred for this, what shall I do, Doc? So where for me personally, um, from my clinical point of view, it's slightly disappointing is that all these patients, well, most of them had CT angiography to exclude left main coronary artery disease. And of course, that 
it's something which I can't organise as a GP because because actually what this study I think is saying is that for many many patients with stable angina, getting their medication absolutely right is as important perhaps you know as referring them for invasive uh, angiography or possibly revascularization. So I think there is something about perhaps being more confident uh, in primary care, whether you are a, a clinical pharmacist or a GP saying, let's get your medication absolutely right. Let's give you some anti-anginal treatments. And if that works for you, we may not need you to go on and have angiography. Whereas I think what's happened in the last 10 years in my clinical experience is everyone with angina gets referred for angiography. Um, and that may be unnecessary. And if you look at the data from this study, we may be doing a disservice. Whilst death rates were, un, were, were the same in both groups in this study, you know, the instant of MIs, the instance of the composite outcome, you know, it does look as if in that first period of time, you may be doing your patient a disservice. So the suggestion that the pendulum is swinging slightly back from the, from the interventional approach. I think so. And, and for a lot of patients, you know, it, angiography and revascularization has huge implications. You know, uh, this study didn't look at bleeding risk or anything like that. But certainly in my experience, patients on double or even triple um, therapy for a short period after drug eluding stents can get into significant difficulties and have a really difficult time um, whilst on multiple um blood thinners. So I think it, it does, this I think only saw a little bit of the issue. And I think we need to certainly, as I think Tech says, we need to really make sure that patients truly understand the benefits of having this procedure done. What is it really going to offer them rather than just assuming that it must be a good idea to open up all your arteries? So back to discussion we had, was it last month or the month before, about informed consent and how to describe harms and benefits to patients in order to help them make the best decision for Absol them. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and it's really complicated. I mean, I've struggled today and, you know, I've been looking at it all day. So absolutely. Big, big issue. OK, thank you very much. And then our main article this month is another one of our prescribing for pregnancy series. I think this might be number six in the list. Um, this one's on management of headache and migraine. So I suppose same question, take home messages and key points. Yeah, great, great article. Again, I have I've really enjoyed these articles. Really useful to have um, up your sleeve. And I think this one's important because... 50% of European adults between the ages of 18 and 65 experience headaches each year. So this is a big issue. Um, and what this study does is uh, it looks at the issue of headaches in pregnancy, looks at actually do headaches and a history of migraine actually affect pregnancy outcomes? And the answer is yes, they probably do. Uh, we look at what medication is suitable for pregnancy, um, and also look at whether prophylaxis in pregnancy is an option. And perhaps most importantly, also look at the drugs that are not recommended in pregnancy. And once again, the take home amongst many messages for me was this issue. If you've got a woman of childbearing age who suffers from migraine, just think about pregnancy in the sense of ask her, you know, is this likely to, because 
One of the areas that is a big issue with is around prophylaxis because drugs for prophylaxis of migraine, a lot of them are difficult or shouldn't be used in pregnancy. And it'd be better not to start them at all than start them and then a year or two later, try and work out how how you deal with that um, if the woman becomes pregnant. So yeah, really, really useful, wide um, ranging, useful article. And I think it, it re-emphasised for me, and the theme that has come through all these articles, is the preconception counselling, as you're saying. If you have somebody with a condition, always asking them about their plans for pregnancy and being proactive about the drugs that may be problematic and thinking about what strategies that you would employ if and when they become pregnant. Because um, much better to do it before than, than when they come back saying, oh, I'm, I'm now pregnant and we need to change my medicines. Yes, or more difficulty, you know, more, more of an issue that they just stop them when they discover they're pregnant and then, you know, perhaps get a rebound issue with headaches and, and struggle with that. Um, so I think you're right. I, th- I think it's just think ahead with, with all these areas of, you know, in therapeutics, um, always think ahead. There we are. That's the message of today. <laughs> Always think ahead. Excellent. Always think ahead. Okay. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at ddb.bmj.com. Please let us know what you think of our podcast. We'd love to have your comments, be they positive or be they negative. Uh, you can leave us a rating or comment on the iTunes site, and there's a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. Happy to receive uh, suggestions for other topics you'd like us to cover. So many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for November's podcast. Mm-hmm.